Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing and they wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climb in Consulting. We are back after our summer break and I am really excited to bring you a ton of great interviews over the coming months. I have been busy recording conversations with some great guests over the summer and I'm really looking forward to sharing them with you. So to kick us off, who have we got? Well, I have a fantastic conversation with a really interesting guest who has achieved phenomenal success in just three short years. Today, I speak to Tony Clark, founder and CEO of NextWave. I should say that I was introduced to Tony by Ben Edwards at CMAP, who, when I asked who would he get on the show, he pointed me straight at Tony. And knowing his story, said he would be a fantastic guest. And I must say, Ben was spot on there. Tony's journey is a fascinating one. After spending nine years with Accenture and being clearly on the partner track, he decided to change course and left to help scale two successful boutique consultancies, MA Partners and Crossbridge Consulting, both of which grew and eventually went on to be acquired by larger organizations. 
During his time leading those firms, Tony honed his consulting skills, his business growth skills, and built on top his experience with complex digital transformation, which is what led to the idea for his own venture. Nextwave launched in 2020, just before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. But despite the difficult start, the firm has already grown into a £6 million business with a 60-strong team working on digital acceleration projects across financial services. They were recently recognized as the UK's fastest growing consultancy and the 13th fastest growing business in the UK as a whole, with an annual compound growth rate of almost 200%. In this one, we dive into some fascinating topics and explore how Tony and the team were able to achieve that phenomenal growth rate. We explore Tony's decision to start the firm and the signs that he saw in the industry that's helped him set the course for Next Wave. We talk about why not being billable ended up being one of Tony's best business decisions, and we explore the other principles that he founded Next Wave on. We then talk about COVID-19 and how it almost derailed Next Wave before it even got started, and then explore not only how the firm has bounced back, but what it has done to achieve the phenomenal growth that it has in just three short years. There is so much in this episode. I've given you a little bit, but it is almost impossible to summarize. Suffice to say, if you are coming back from summer and you're thinking about accelerating your own consulting career, whether that's building your practice within your own firm, launching your own firm, or just taking your career to that next level, I know you are going to love this conversation. So with the intro over, all that is left to say is please enjoy today's conversation with Tony Clark. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. It's good to be here. Well, I, I feel like we've we've already done a little bit of this over lunch, so uh, I deliberately didn't ask you many of the things we're going to talk about because I didn't want to hear the story and sort of not have the surprise when we actually dive into it. So we've touched on some of the things. Obviously, there's a lot for us to go into, but for our listeners, could you just share a brief overview of who you are and how you got to where you are today? Nick, thanks. So I'm founder and CEO at NextWave, and when I cast my mind back, it's actually 35 years that I've been in the consulting space, most of it in financial services, which sounds like an alarmingly long time. I've been doing a number of different things. I started on the Accenture Graduate Scheme. It's actually called Anderson Consulting at the time. And uh, I was there for nine years. And when I was just sort of nudging towards the associate partner ranks, I had an opportunity to spin out and help start a boutique consultancy called MA Partners. I was one of the early team there for almost 10 years. We had a successful exit a sale to a firm called Detica. I was there for a couple of years. This is during the financial crash. Um, that business went a different direction. It was actually sold to BAE Systems. And when you see the corporate org chart and you realize that your capital markets consulting team is on the bottom branch of the submarine division, you, you realize that perhaps um, it's time for uh, something different. So um, Crossbridge Consulting was another boutique startup, very successful business, niche business in London. And in 2015, we were looking for new parentage for, for that firm and uh, we were acquired by, by Synecron. And, and Synecron, for those who know the firm, very successful, full lifecycle technology and digital consulting firm. And that was much more for me, a scale up. So that was uh, large teams of engineers in India. And we were building um, quite innovative accelerator solutions in our, in our labs with our clients. And uh, so I layered onto what had previously been mostly business consulting. Uh, I layered on a whole set of experiences around technology delivery, solution delivery for clients. And 
Synchron ran well for me through to uh, 2019. I was ru- the the MD running the UK division for uh, pretty much that, that that five year period up to 2019, and then I had an idea um, around uh, around a new venture, which is uh, which is Next Wave. That is a very succinct overview, and just because we'll dive into all of it, but could you paint a picture of where Next Wave? I guess you mentioned started 2019. Where is Next Wave now? Yeah, so, so Next Wave is a digital acceleration consultancy. We're to some extent a challenger consultancy focused on technology-enabled solutions. Our clients come to us because they're looking for a more future-faced alternative to some of the big-name consultancies. And what we're doing at a practical level is we're doing some of the strategy and the advisory and the operating model work and a broad transformation delivery. But um, there's a very significant part of the business which is solutioning. And we use low-code technology for automation, for data pipelines, for uh, data intelligence. And we're, and we're building platform solutions for clients um, in, across the FS sector. So I sometimes say more software, less PowerPoint as an output. And uh, we launched, helpfully, we called it Next Wave about four months prior to the pandemic and launched straight into COVID. So never far from anyone's mind. Very hard first 12 months as a micro firm without a trading record in an environment where much of the sector was still in sort of pandemic paralysis and trying to work out um, what was going to happen next. And uh, firms tend to stick with the status quo when that happens. And so onboarding new suppliers uh, as a micro firm was was not top of anyone's list. Uh, and it took a long time to get master agreements and, and to build up a client roster. But we've come out the other side of that and we're now 80 people across four offices. The largest piece of this is uh, is in London. Where, where we're sitting today. We've got 23 clients, um, 30 technology partnerships. We've done 100 projects and we've um, started to win some awards and uh, get some recognition. And it's all, it's all very exciting. That is a brilliant overview, Tony, and just tease us up nicely for many of the things we're going to talk about. I, I hadn't intended to, but you, you did make me laugh with it. H- how did capital markets get stuck under the submarine division? <laughs> don't really know um, and it, this might be my patchy memory but i've got a, i do have a clear recollection of seeing it seeing a bae org chart that had us um, uh, um maybe some maybe some of his idea of, uh, of, of a bit of fun but uh, the the Detica business was famous for market leading um data intelligence and security work and that's really what i think why that acquisition happened and they uh, the the uh, commercial division, the capital markets consulting piece, which was our so smaller part of the Dedica business, was a bit of an adjunct, I think, and uh, it was just it wasn't the right place to be at that point. Yeah, I think that the writing is on the wall, like you say, when when capital markets is underneath the submarine. As I'm sure there's all metaphors about being underwater there as well. And I, I hadn't thought about next wave and the uh, the pandemic as well. There's, <laughs> I imagine, many a joke that I won't want to repeat because I'm sure you're sick of them. So I think to start with, then, obviously, keen to almost pick up at that you know we we talked about the the founding and actually I'd love to dive into the founding story because you you talked about there you know you'd had a sort of solid run of growing in consulting firms you mentioned sort of MA partners had exited um Crossbridge had exited so you'd you'd seen this journey before you'd been on this journey and almost you mentioned you had an idea lots of people have ideas not that many people go and make those ideas things i kind of intrigued what led you to actually make that jump to launch Next Wave and kind of almost in retrospect, how did those earlier ventures set you up for that? Yeah, that's a good question, Nick. Um, so you're right that, you know, I think um, the growth journey is sort of 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. As we've discovered, it's quite easy to have the ideas. An interesting 
when you're thinking of starting something off, there's a sort of a snowball effect. Once you've told three people you're doing it, then you're sort of, you're doing it. And I, and I came up with a Latin name for, uh, for, I still own the URL actually, it's called VertoFS, which means transform in Latin of natural services. And I showed it to one great friend of mine, trusted client at the time. He's very straightforward. And he goes, did you study Latin? And I said, no. And he goes, that's bollocks, that is. <laughs> and I thought, right, okay, this isn't going to resonate. So we ended up going back to the drawing board with the name and the logo and all of those. And this really was blank canvas, so completely started from the beginning. So Next Wave very much was a blank canvas for a, a new business, but one that I think is proving to be differentiated in the sector. We've moved the needle a little bit in terms of the consulting model, and it was really a combination of, of things. I mean, I, clearly I've had different career experiences, a small, medium, and large, actually sort of um, in the large, small, medium order in my career. And I felt that I'd seen business consulting, technology, and digital consulting in, in many different forms along the way. So I'd learned a lot. But um, really when you're thinking about launching a venture, it's about um, what, what's the market demand and what it, what would be unique capabilities and, uh, and and really you very much need to satisfy that market positioning for something to succeed. And I was having a, a left ear, right ear conversation with the market. In one ear, I had enterprise clients, the likes of um, HSBC and others, who I had long-standing relationships with, saying to me, we are going to now start to double down on some of this low code and, and data-driven solutioning for the business. And we may have been doing prototyping and proofs of value and concept with you prior, and we may have had our incubators running, but now we're going to make some investments. And we are going to scale up on some of these platform technologies and some of these fintech solutions. And there's, and there's a difference, platform being obviously generally a talk about them as sort of Lego brick technologies and you can build lots of different use cases across uh, business areas and the fintech solutions tend to be a bit more um, narrow around a particular regulatory need or a risk product or whatever it may be and, and we collaborate with both but the point was that the client base were asking for consultancies that understood that space and could help leverage both platform and fintech reg tech for the business and uh, which necessarily really meant new partnerships with new alliance partners, products and technology firms. And in the other ear, at the same time, I had the founders and execs of some of those product and platform firms come knocking on the door almost every week saying, um, look, we've got this great product. And in some cases, uh, I've also sold a thousand licenses to Big Bank or wherever it may be. Can you learn our platform? We're going to need consulting partners to take this out to market because as any good product firm will tell you, and this is probably always been the case but i started to notice it more in 2019 because people were telling me as any product firm will tell you that they're valued on multiples of arr on their recurring revenue license revenue and that that, that a professional services capability is important for client success and delight your clients and implement the system but uh, um, very few product firms really want a, a big professional services capability because that attracts a completely different multiple and it's a much bigger operation and if you can keep your um your your business focused on having world-class leading product you can you can do that with a focus team and the overheads and uh, and achieve valuations that are based on the on the, obviously on the license revenue on the product business which means you need a partner community of consultancies to uh, go and implement the solution across the street. So we were having that approach all the time, but from a crop of fintechs, some of whom uh, were very early stage, some of whom 
much more mature or had been through series ABC or fundraisers. Some of them were listed. Um, two of my big tech partners are listed on NASDAQ. And uh, we tend to err more towards the latter. It, we at least said they had to have one or more tier one clients and they had needed to have had a number of years um, track record. And in many cases, we knew the leadership teams and, and uh, um, may, may have had some history or, or had a, uh, uh, an insight from client relationships on, uh, on how uh, compelling the solution was. But I found myself in the middle of that conversation. So you had an enterprise corporate base, um, big banks and uh, and other financial institutions who wanted to leverage fintech at scale and fintechs who wanted um, solutioning partners to implement for the business. So that was a pretty clear, well, at least to me, a pretty clear indication that therein lay a business opportunity. And that's really interesting. I want to pick up on the partners, actually. So that was you were just because of what you were doing in the market, and I assume you're at Synchron, so like you were hearing these two sides of that left and right here and thinking, there is this opportunity. And that's just so I'm making sure where I go with these questions, right? That's then what made you go, right, now's the time. There's a, an opportunity here with Next Wave. Is that? Well, there were two, two, two other factors. I mean, Synchron at the time was. Uh, consolidating the organization somewhat so there were a few changes and we topped out on what had been an almost a 15x growth curve um in the in the last four years so i'm thinking okay well this can't continue forever so what's what's next and 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 uh, my observation has been and throughout my career that every five years or so you sort of need to reinvent yourself somewhat in the sector and i pitched this idea inside Silicon and uh to be fair to my, my boss at the time, he sort of got it. But at the same time, there was a bit of a conversation around, well, how's that going to keep um, thousands of engineers in India busy? And how big's the first project? Answer very small, you know, one to three people. How long is it going to take to learn this platform technology? Might take a month or two. Hmm, okay, that's not really going to move the needle. And so the proposition was a different at a different stage, very different stage in scale. It's sort of a new thing. And it was too much of a pivot for uh for Synochron at the time but it was nonetheless a good idea so uh, uh so, yeah. so, so so we agreed to split at the time and uh and, and it's all on a very good goodwill basis and has been ever since but uh yeah that's when next wave first uh, originated fascinating well and as we'll we'll talk about you know like you say the the idea has been proved out the firm's grown phenomenally and, and i, I want to pick up on that growth but i just in what you've highlighted, you mentioned in your intro kind of the number of partners that you work with. I think you've currently got 30 technology partners. And there's, I'm really interested in this because I see a number of people who have tried to do what you've done, but they almost peg their allegiance to one platform. So, you know, I, I can't even remember the name of the platform, Tableau, that was it, years ago when I worked in the city. And, and Tableau may still be around. I never was involved, but I knew a lot of, of firms that had gone off to be Tableau consultancies. And then I think the platform fell out of favor and suddenly these consultancies had problems. I'm really interested about your decision to work across those 30. Was that a conscious, we need to serve the market and so we'll work with as many as you know as we need? Was it a deliberate diversification? How did you start with that approach of, yeah, the, what was the goal in that respect? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. I mean, there were... Back in the day, there were some very successful firms that were SAP consultancies for, you know, 10, 20 years. And uh, I think um, SAP had done pretty well, actually, so they're probably still out there. But uh, that was very much a single proposition. My idea was what if the consulting model could be um, more tech-enabled, so based on acceleration technologies, low-code component architecture, so we could build things quickly, and we overlaid that with industry expertise and we built solutions for the business, wouldn't that be a bit different? So it was sort of that. And 
I had three or four of those technology platforms in mind when I started, not 30. So I, I knew who, who the first three major partners were going to be right at the beginning. However, when I started talking to clients, part of the value that they were reflecting back to me was, you can help me navigate this whole space. And I started talking, and we're, we were part of, and still part of, a couple of network organizations in the fintech space. And one of them told me there are 15,000 fintechs out there. And the other one told me there are 75,000 fintechs out there. So very early on, I knew that we weren't going to try and be a research house and, and map the whole market and do one of those big charts with all the logos of every fintech in a particular space and claim to have a partnership or a leverage of, uh, of all of those technologies. We, we, we are not that. We've got three partners, primary partners, that we do heavy lifting and we build solutions with clients every day. And those are where we have more than 20 people in our team with project ex experience and hard skills. And we can absolutely um, deliver a whole of project for clients. The other 27, some of them are a bit proof of concept, reference architecture, after possible. Some of them will come up on the rails, I'm sure, and uh, and will become scale partners in the future. But we are trying to address partly that client challenge of navigating the market by, again, not being professing to have done a full market scan, but to know some interesting solutions that seem to have real value for the sector that we can evaluate with our clients and guide our clients towards uh, you know, one is now what one of our um, collaborators actually and, and sort of client slash mentor at the time said to me, um, if you get this right, you can save me six months on the on the decisioning cycle because you'll um, you'll have an opinion, right? And I'm trying to solve this business problem, and if you've already done the evaluation on on some of the uh, some of the accelerators, then that's a, that, that's got real value to me. No, I think I think that's a great point, and there's something in that, Tony, as well to your to what you said around having that value reflected. And I asked this maybe for anyone listening who who's where you were before you launched the business. How did you approach these conversations to tease out that value and also to understand where that value was? Because I think as consultants, we're always quite bright. We're always, you know, we're always thinking ahead. And sometimes we can think a bit too far ahead and think we're right. And, you know, our idea is brilliant. You've obviously listened to the industry and, and reflected that. Was that just something that was natural to you innate? Or how did you approach those conversations to tease that detail out? Yeah, I think I, mean, I have a bit of an advantage in the sense that I've been in the sector forever. And these conversations were uh, every day in my role you know, with Synchron at the time. Fundamentally, consultants are always um, problem solving for clients. I was just really spotting a trend and a uh, recurring theme around um, component technologies and uh, data-driven solutions and low code. And more came at it at the start from that angle saying that uh, although I'm very very um, quick now to stress that we're, we are looking at a business problem and we're solving a solution for the business and then we choose the right tool for the job it just happened that n knowing that we were already going to work with the leading analytics and data and process automation technologies already presented a whole number of use cases right because, uh, because that's where those um, tools were well deployed in the sector in fraud in KYC in client onboarding in process automation a whole raft of different business problem areas so there was already a dialogue around those business problem areas which we've expanded on that since we're now doing um, uh, strategy work for c-suite and uh, um, looking at how we can drive value in in, in growth companies and p-backed companies um, working in the sustainable finance space we're doing other things that weren't in the sort of first round of conversations three years ago but um, yeah it all really stems back to problem solving and um, current goals and objectives for clients no and, and to your point i think being alive to those changes and trends in the industry and latching onto them when you 
when you've worked in an industry for as long as you have, in your case, it's very easy, but for some, it may not be to think about that forward trend and not get caught in the kind of how we've always done it. And clearly you captured that kind of zeitgeist and, and it's worked for you. I want to come on to the growth journey. I want to bridge into there with a question that kind of closes off that launching phase. And it's one, just because of what you said around, you know, the proposition for Next Wave is very different. And you had come, you'd come from tech consulting, but it wasn't the low code world. And again, I say this for people who might be thinking of launching their own business. Kind of, it can often seem easy to go from what I did for someone else into doing it for myself. And you've gone from, to your point, we'd build software here, not PowerPoints. You've probably, and I, I may be completely wrong here, but you went from building PowerPoints to building software. And so in the early days, was it just you and a manual of how to use these tools? Did you always visioned, you know, we're going to go out to, to get developers? I guess, how did you approach that early stage where the business model is fundamentally different? Or maybe it wasn't. It was an extrapolation of what I've been doing for a long time, which was overseeing delivery projects, which are solutioning for the same client base. It just turns out that the um, the component technology and the, what I call acceleration tech and the low-code space um, uses different tools. However, very early, and this was in sort of pulling together the next wave early partner team, our leadership team, um, I was lucky enough to be able to onboard folks who had the deep skills in the right space. So this wasn't me trying to learn low-code software and then professing to be an expert in delivering low-code solutions. One of the conscious decisions I made right at the beginning, which actually runs counter to what some founders will tell you in consulting, is that I decided I wasn't going to be billable. And a lot of people do this, and we did it in earlier firms, boutiques that I started. Everyone out went out and went on fees, and then you'd sort of launch the business side of the desk. But I had ambition for Next Wave from the beginning, and I'd also at my stage in life, you know, had a little bit more financial runway and I could see how this could come together quickly. And I figured that a day of my time on building the business and selling the projects was worth more than a day of my time going deep into doing doing a project for someone. So I've sort of decided I'm going to work on the business and scale the business consciously and not do billable time. So that gave me lots of bandwidth, lots of cycles to focus on building our platform and getting going. And that included onboarding key people, senior people who've uh, who've got the skills. So I feel that we've layered the team in in the right order, that we've got some of the very best low-code and data engineers in, in the country. Our context, a team, we've got um, over 20 people with project experience, which I'm told is the most concentrated experience in the partner network period, even yeah. though there's much bigger firms who've got bigger numbers. But our folks have all been through the project cycle one or several times and uh, I've got deep experience. And it's not dissimilar in the uh, process automation and the analytics space where we work with Appian um, and with Alteryx principally, deep skills. Now, they're not all my skills. My skills are on um, really uh, spinning the plates to drive and grow the business rather than um, get going deep into the, into the uh, technology um, expertise. And I think a, a really great point and actually one I'd love to dig into because the growth obviously started from that beginning and the decisions you made. And and to your point there, you, I think you're right. Deciding out of the gate not to be billable is quite unusual. I think for most most founders that I've spoken to for the podcast, or I know to, to your point, it, it's almost contractor into consultants. You bill and then you build and then you don't have to bill. I'd love to know what else, if there were any other kind of founding principles that you know set the business up for success and kind of what those were for you either the ones that are the same as everyone else or the ones that are potentially different. Yeah, you know, th th that self-utilization point was, was key. Um, I also decided early on that this was 
going to be my venture. So and my team know this, um, so I've, I've got a controlling stake. I told them I would keep it that way. And an interesting experience, I grew up sort of in boutique consulting, limited liability partnerships and very flat structures. And there's lots of uh, negotiation discussion about everything. And uh, that has its place. But uh, my Cinecron experience was much more hierarchical, bigger organization, more of a uh, corporate structure. And I have to selfishly say, I sort of enjoyed the being in charge of a, uh, a region. I also found I could get more done because I had, I was empowered to make decisions. And uh, when I started Next Wave, it was uh, at that time, genuinely completely new, new new brand idea, new venture idea, and my, my baby, if you like. And, uh, and I thought, I'm, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of uh, be accountable for the success or otherwise, but also uh, be um, hopefully successful and be rewarded for that somewhere down the line. And uh, and, I, and I want to keep my hands on the steering wheel. So that was a principle as well. When you say something like that to people who want to come into your senior team, it becomes quite self-selecting because that doesn't work for everyone. And uh, so th- these principles I found very useful. I stuck them on a PowerPoint slide right at the beginning and sort of said, here are the guide rails on which are, and the parameters in which I, I, I'm I'm launching this and if that works for you and you want to be part of it, fantastic. And if it doesn't, that's also fantastic, right? But it just became quite self-selecting about um, who came on board. We already had some alignment by the time we knew we were going to be working together. So I think that was a part of it. Um, and there's some more things which I'm sure you'll ask me about, sort of how we set up the model and uh, and how, what we do with them, you know, the the commercial incentives to drive the business. But beyond just who to get on board and principles for leadership team it was more sort of just business fundamentals it was have that as you said nick a few minutes ago clear market proposition and vision so what do you want to be famous for be clear about that why is that different for the sector and realizing that early client demand sort of solves for everything because it just pulls everything else through i knew i wanted to platform the business to scale so we invested in cloud platforms and professional services automation and uh, digital ledger and uh, various uh, we've got a whole rut we've got an amazing stack of um, consulting infrastructure that supports business and ultimately even as at this scale now we've still got a very lean sort of back office operations Sure, we should say right now shout out to ben at cmap for introducing us um, <laughs> yes that's cmap part of it uh, if you need yeah. a new psa platform ben at cmap go and go and look them up there's his two minute ad in the middle of this but yes sorry tony please there, please there, carry there, on there you go so the founding principles found a team leveraging expertise right from the beginning that wasn't all my expertise so not trying to do everything myself but freeing up my capacity to work on it from the beginning i mean you know, inevitably, I'm in the business as well at a level, but we do have um, have structure, and we've got people who are heads of practice who know um, lots that they need to know about that particular part of the uh, part of the operation. And uh, working very early on early pipe and putting in the infrastructure so that um, we have a proper business, uh, a scalable business operation and infrastructure from the beginning. Those were a few of the things, and, and actually, probably uh, realize it's a long list, but when you're doing business planning on a blank canvas and you've got the luxury of choosing the name and the logo and you know a few other things right from the beginning and um, the other thing i did as i said I, I want to do a bit of social enterprise because we had and i'm sure it's the same for everyone who's been on a corporate journey been involved in some or maybe lots of csr type activities and uh, and i had in in various forms but it always been a bit of a sideshow and i just thought well i've this is going to be a big thing. It's um, at a point in career where I should try and do some good with the business. And uh, is, there, is there a social enterprise initiative that I can design in the operating model for the next wave? At the very beginning, that 
means that we're sort of doing our bit and giving a bit back to society. And uh, so, and again, you know, blank sheet of paper and pencil, you can sort of do whatever you like. So I called it One for One, and it's um, it's a social initiative to provide a, a two-week um, career start for youngsters who've had a very diverse or um, difficult educational background sometimes. And we give them a sort of pressure cooker insight into the world of uh, fintech finance and technology uh, we pay them they come they don't actually do any work for us but they come here for two weeks and uh, they get 20 or so hours of lectures they hear from founders of fintechs our tech partners present they hear from our clients they hear from our partners and they do a research project and it sets them up with um, sort of unparalleled insight into our space in the sector and a set of experiences and knowledge to take them to uh, next stage in education or, or career choices and we've had some amazing um, we've put run it four times put 34 youngsters through that so far we've uh, won an award for it this year we did a partnership with a small shout out to investec who uh, who saw the potential from their side and, and they said bring the team over and we brought the brought the interns over and we did a did an event over with them um, and one of our cohort actually then got a follow-on internship opportunity as also Amazing. all sorts of good things yeah. have, have fallen off the back of this uh, so for that one um and i realize i'm sort of uh doing a bit of a deep dive on the one for one program but that one actually it created a lot of the sort of uh cultural momentum that we've got in the team because it's one of the reasons some of our staff said they joined us as they said actually oh look, you don't look like every other consulting company you're actually doing something good here as well no well i mean firstly well done on that and uh sounds like a fantastic scheme like you i'm a big believer in social mobility and i've also launched not to quite your level i only got six kids this year so i'm chasing i'm chasing you tony but i think what you've produced there and what you're creating for those young people is amazing and to your point right at the end i think it's quite interesting in today's world those are actually the things people join for because that is the marker of culture you know everyone can stick values on a wall and you know pictures on a website but actually if you're giving your time, your money, your attention to something like that, it, it shows as an organization you really care about that. And so I think, you know, a really powerful piece and to what you were saying about that, but in general, almost that you're starting with the foundations of if you start in the right place, you can be pretty confident you'll go into the right direction. I think if you start with we'll do that later, you know, later never comes. And so yeah, completely agree on the social mobility side. And the same with those other foundations as well. I think having those clear mean you know where you're going and i'm interested in obviously we touched on that growth journey you know growth has been phenomenal i think i'm sharing public figures here so because i did look at the time so if i'm wrong or i'm not allowed to say this stop me and we can we can bleep it out but i think you're at like six million now revenue is that right six and a half six and a half so you know that's a phenomenal growth journey i think compound compound annual growth rate of 188 percent a year which again that's you know, a huge amount of growth, kind of doubling every year, basically. Is that doubling? Is that tripling every year? Yeah, this is maybe why I don't work in a bank. But the point I was going for is almost how did you find those foundations kind of held as you had that growth? You know, was it that those foundations have just seen you through that period? You know, your early ideas have really held true, or have you had to, I guess, build on those early foundations, those early principles, kind of? Almost, what would you attribute that success to? Yeah, I think the principles and foundations have held pretty true. Actually, uh, my 
co-founder Ian and I um, reflect on this from time to time and uh, we say you know, we pretty much stuck to the script didn't we um, and uh, many of the things that we said we would do tech enabled consulting solutioning for clients the social enterprise piece the blend of skills and the platforms that we thought we'd be working with they're, they're all there so I don't think we changed direction and I think some of those decisions those early decisions have set us up very well so having the right positive um, specialist partners um, so in our case, generally XMD grade from big firms in the financial services sector to head up the practice teams as a conscious construct instantly gives you focus and, a, and an org structure that can then scale as a piece of the business. So if you get those in place around each of the uh, the practice teams, then there is a platform for growth from the very beginning. And in my case, we, you know, we went from two or three people to 10 people to 20 people now sort of mid 50s in the UK business but I still only have six six direct reports because I've got that sort of org structure right from the beginning so in that way it's almost not that different when I was running a thousand people you know in in the uh, in the UK regional business at Cinecron because I still only had six or eight direct reports they just had more underneath them so um, we created sort of enterprise organization quite early on got the right specialists heading the practices and then just focused on walking the talk on the culture so it's yeah as, as you said nick it's it's fine and well um the right thing to do to be doing something in the mobility or the enterprise space but you sort of need to if you're going to be values led and admittedly we didn't write our values on day one actually we just sort of started behaving the way we thought we should behave and then we wrote them down afterwards so you can find them on the website but they they were sort of year two i think we actually wrote the values down but the point was we were acting with some integrity and trying to look after people and there's been some things along the way where we've had a difficult position where you get let down by a client or as an employee situation where you could um you could there's more than one choice you could make about how you're going to deal with it and i like to think we've um, generally always made the choice that um, supports our team and sort of shows that we care and a super high degree of empowerment for the team. So we've got junior people who are facing off to senior clients now, owning whole pieces of work. We delegate much of the learning and the fun agenda to the team, and it's now become a thing. It's sort of uh, self-organizing. So there's more about that again. I wrote, oh, we got the, uh, as I think you know, we did the Workplace Best Place to Work um, Award earlier in the year. It's another Times Award. I'm very fortunate to have been recognised there as well, and uh, and I did write quite a lengthy blog article on it. So rather than going through it, all, we will or, put a link in the show notes. So that, you so can read so about it yeah. for anyone who wants to get that. Yeah, have a look in the show notes. But I, I think to your point, I love that you know we we behaved how we should, and then we wrote it down because you know, that's the best way around to do it. And like you highlighted, those experiences with clients, team members, that's when the rubber hits the road. You know, it's the moments of truth, isn't it? And I know. I've done a little bit in retail banking and that was always the thing we used to talk about. And actually it's, those are when people really see that culture. You touched on a point and again, just to things that feel slightly different in the way you structured the firm. I, I want to pick up on it in two ways. You mentioned your, your leadership team are largely ex sort of banking MDs and that you've set up this enterprise level sort of structuring. And I'll ask them both and feel free, we might actually break them up if they're too big. I think the first question for me would be, for many in consulting, there's kind of a, they're not always sure clients can become consultants. There's a reason people sit on client side, a reason people can sit on consulting side. And so I don't always see the most success where client side people jump to consulting. It can be vice versa. So I'm interested in why you went client side and, and to pick those people out. I guess there's also to your model of, to what you said right at the start about you not being billable. 
another kind of common approach, I guess, in building a boutique consultancy is kind of you have the partner who's the expert and they build junior people underneath them. It sounds like you went the other way and you've built the senior people first. I might be right or wrong on that. So I guess interest in those two, maybe we start with the MDs and then you come on to the structuring, but I thought I'd share them in case they blur. Yeah. Um, so to be clear, we're not completely polarized on that first question. So our chief growth officer ran a successful consulting boutique for very many years. My co-founder Ian um, was a MA Partners consultant with me, but also happened to have done 11 years at HSBC and a, a stint prior to that, I think it much earlier at Bankers Trust and other firms. So he's sort of had done both. But we do have a uh, higher than usual concentration of practitioner from the frontline experience. And generally speaking, careful what I say, but generally speaking, I mean, it's a, an easy transition. And I think if you ask the individuals involved, they would say, on one level, yes, because we're still delivering value to the business and we're using our expertise and we're solutioning. On another level, I'm now this thing called a supplier. And oh my God, you know, I don't, I, you know, I don't have direct chain of command over all the resources at my disposal anymore. And I now have to influence quirky clients and uh, deal with the client dynamic um, and procurement departments and how they do sometimes deal with vendors slash suppliers. And I don't like the vendor word for, for just for that reason, because it implies that you're somehow always selling something, <laughs> which um, maybe some of my clients would take issue with that. But <laughs> the, the being on the supply side is unless you're in really in a partnership with your clients, and I've had some great partnerships along the way, one of which was, was with HSBC actually, where it was a very level partnership and we had forward view of pipeline and we talked about how we'd add value to the business together and we could plan things in and we took co um, responsibility for projects and uh, super arrangement. But if there's an imbalance there, and there often is in, as a consultant into, into big co, and, you, and you're not used to that, then particularly if you come out of a senior position where, where you're at a certain level, of uh, status and profile in the in the business, it could be a bit of a shock. So, um, so some of my leadership team certainly told me that. I said, "Oh my god, I can't believe how the procurement departments are teacher treating us." Sort of thing. So we've had a bit of that, and everyone has a different level of sort of commercial DNA and go win business versus um, deep delivery DNA. But I think you need a balance on your team. So we're not all of one and none of the other, but we've got we've got quite a good balance. Well, and and to your point around obviously for yourselves, the industry people who have come across it's worked really well. What is it about the people or extrapolate to that type of person that you've hired that has made that work? And, and I'm asking here, if someone's thinking, well, Tony, that makes perfect sense. I'd love to hire some more industry people. What is it that someone listening should be looking out for to see if actually that person can make the jump from, to your point, being internal, having those structures versus being that yeah, inverted commas supplier or partner? Look, in our case, um, the model is quite self-selecting because we there's a great opportunity on so I'd say the next wave platform as part of next wave to build your own practice team and to, and to do very well out of it but it requires a lot high degree of self-starter behaviors so straight up i would say it's sort of they have to be self-starters because in, and certainly with us you wouldn't get off the starting line otherwise i would say practitioner not politician so if you go to corporates and it's um you know i don't know how how true this is across the sector these days but you run up against characters from time to time. And earlier in my career, there seemed to be quite a lot of them. And um, people seem to be able to do well in corporate hierarchy from time to time, um, not leveraging political dynamics. I'm sure they're doing a great job as well. But sometimes you, you see people and you say, crikey, how, what they, you know, that's a really quite an unusual person. What are they doing in that role? And, uh, you know, we are trading off of practitioner competence and depth of skills and experience and trying to really stay away from any uh, 
and certainly any client side politics, um, let alone um, inventing our own. So it's about trading in, I sometimes call it trading intangibles. So and I think Silicon Valley called it show, don't tell, you know, build stuff, produce outputs, own a particular issue or problem, and then work on the how might we solve this rather than presenting the obstacles and taking stuff, something through to a conclusion whereby we've produced a product or we've produced an outcome for a client or if it's an internal initiative that it's done and with the right degree of inputs and consultation along the way. But it's about something so reached a logical conclusion rather than sort of stopping two thirds of the way and creating work for the rest of the team to somehow rally around and make it happen. So that sort of self-starter, complete a finisher behavior is huge. And uh, in the case of um, our leadership team, of course, um, there's a degree of entrepreneurship as well. Yeah, and I, I love that uh, that sort of show don't tell phrase because I think it, it brings really nicely. You you mentioned that practitioner, not politician. I think too often you can get and I haven't worked in big corporates for quite a while, but like you, I I used to, and you can get a lot of telling. Actually, it's those people who show or they do. That's that differential, and and then to your point, it's not that actually the differences between someone in industry and consulting isn't isn't that vast. And you mentioned it there, and you 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 also touched on it earlier. So I. Now might be a good time just to bring it up because I think it does touch that growth journey. You mentioned kind of you have a slightly different commercial model at that partner level. And again, if this isn't something we can share, we can move on. But if you're happy to, I'd love to share sort of how you structure that because you mentioned it's self-selecting. And again, I think that could be quite interesting for our listeners in terms of how it is different from some other firms. Yeah, I, I don't think this is unique indeed because we did the same thing back at MA Partners, um, say 15 20 years ago, but uh, we have the concept of uh, practice heads who are heads of practice delivery teams, and we simply have a commercial model that rewards utilization in those practice teams of you know, self-utilization of the lead partner if they choose to be billable on work, which most of them do to a degree, and rewards the utilization of the, uh, of, of the practice team, however big it may be. And I found that, that when you're bootstrapping a business from the beginning, and we took no external funding, and we've been building balance sheet since um, January 2000 when we got first fees, then that model doesn't support hiring an industry MD at a relatively chunky six-figure salary and then waiting to see what happens. You just can't do it. So instead we said, well, let's build a model that rewards delivery of revenue and earnings and build out of our footprint and our team. So we simply linked the reward structure to the growth of the business. And that's that was the point about the self-selection because when you talk to folks who are coming out of big name consulting, and we had quite a few, because um, the vision of you know being the leading digital acceleration consultants you're working with acceleration tech and uh, solutioning and next-gen talent to, you know, I can, and I talk about it with with some passion. I mean, it's quite uh, exciting for some people, and including people who are in big, big consulting firms and big, big corporates. So we have, we do get a healthy, and we continue to have an interest. And uh, and we had folks early on who were exploring the, whether there was an opportunity for them, and they'd have very strong CVs on the industry track record. I've worked for you know tier one firms, a great pedigree, but somehow didn't have the commercial or the entrepreneurial gene and it came out usually in the second or third meeting when they'd say yeah and so say how much do i own on day one and i said well how much business are you bringing oh i don't know yet and like well if you can back yourself to go into the market and win work and deliver it and hire people and train them and deploy them and 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 deliver success and scale that business then we've got a great model for that right if you if you're not sure 
well, you need to make a net positive contribution to a growth consultant business. That was one of my other guiding principles from the very beginning. And if you're not sure that you can do that, then this is probably the wrong conversation. So, uh, yeah, we've, we've tuned the model to recognize a contribution where contribution actually happens and to try not to spin our wheels on investing in areas where, um, where, where frankly, we're, just, we're not yet making money. No, I, I really like that. And to your point, I think obviously some do, as you highlighted, you were doing it with MA partners, sort of some areas of our industry do that. I asked it equally because I hear horror stories where people have, to your point, you know, they've, they've found a rainmaker from the big four who on CV has won hundreds of millions of business, asks for their, you know, their big salary. And actually that step change from big firm to small firm, they're not ready for, or it's not what they expected. And that, that's where I just, to the model you described, I really like that, you know, your point, that net contribution, because at the end of the day, it is, if you aren't bringing in more than you're taking home, you're damaging the firm, you know, you're impacting that balance sheet. And I know at lunch, we talked about kind of other examples across the financial services industry. And I think one thing financial services does very clearly is you can earn some serious money, you can be rewarded very well, but all of that comes back to winning for the group. You know, if you're I think you made the example if your desk, your trading desk does well, you do well. But if your trading desk doesn't do well, you don't. And I think similar sounds like that model that you're bringing in, that net contribution piece is really key. Yeah, if the practice is selling and growing, then you do very well. And if it isn't, you don't do so well. But it's a, it is a balance because it's a risk share, essentially. And if we're at lower utilization rates, then the risk actually sits with the firm because we've payrolled everyone. And that's more at, held at firm level than it is at practice level. And I think it's a really equitable balance really and, and i can't really see how we might have done done this differently i suppose we could have um, sort of you know just run one single firm we do run a single firm PL, but the practice PLs sit inside that which is how we're able to structure what i was describing earlier but if we were only rewarding from one pot i think we'd be in a much more difficult situation around uh, recognizing return on contribution and finding a different way to measure it we'd probably end up going full circle and saying well how much did you build right back at the start of course and just because i i always like to channel what do i think listeners will be asking is they they listen on their dog walks or runs and to your point that model obviously very transparent very clear very fair the question i suspect someone asked well, is tony that's great if everyone runs their own practices like mini businesses but how do you then get them to play together and play nicely because if i'm you know practice leading data i want my share so why would i give it to low code How, i'm sure you've got an answer to that and i'd love to hear it i think everyone shares the realization that um two plus two is more than four and that if we leverage off of the different strengths of the practice then uh, there's a bigger opportunity and the example i gave you when we were talking earlier my commercial partner head of growth um whose entire focus is building relationship and pipeline. It has many more client-side conversations than anyone else because that's what he spends all week doing. However, at second conversation, almost inevitably, it brings a practice partner to talk content and talk delivery and talk solution. So it's a co-sell to a box. And uh, and those opportunities, um, when we win those projects, we just share it. So the credits are sort of a split for the, uh, you know, the origination and the lead versus the uh, proposal and the, uh, and the delivery. And I think everyone realizes that from the uh, business development angle um, with the participation of the practice teams, clearly that is the product and the substance of what we are selling without which there is no business. Um, but there's a fractional credits of many more projects through that collaboration. And it works the other way as well, which is the, uh, the practice partners obviously have 
much uh, bigger pipeline of opportunity through all the introductions that come from um, the commercial side of the business. So the answer is we just share it. Yeah, no, well, it, it sounds obvious when you, you say it out loud, but I, I think to your point that two plus two is more than four of almost, uh, but I guess back to your culture is if everyone buys into that culture, then the rest is easy. You know, if you if you hire the right people, they they are they buy that mindset and will work together. And then like you say, actually, you might open a door with one project, but what comes out of that could be even more so. And I think we've we've talked a lot about the the successes of the model and obviously kind of that Times Top 100 Fast Track Award that came from it. I'm intrigued along that three-year journey. Three years, no, we're longer than four years now. I'm trying to get my maths. We're in five, year five. It's year five, isn't it now? Well, I, th- I tend to count from first first fees. So uh, I guess we're just over three and a half. Three and a half. So that's some serious growth in three and a half years. To your point around, obviously, the, the foundations were solid and you've built a really solid structure. I imagine there were some challenges or some, you know, sort of hiccups along the way and again just because it's always rich learning what along that three and a half year journey has been a challenge what have you had to put time into kind of changing addressing refocusing and yeah how, how have you done that yeah plenty of those i feel like it's been a bit of a roller coaster well pandemic aside so just as a brand new startup pitching for projects and master agreements only on zoom calls and then interviewing and onboarding your first employees over teams interviews and then having them work for the firm and in some cases work for the firm and then having to be furloughed for a number of months without ever having met them face to face was uh was pretty weird those things were all there in the first 18 months or so and even if you're grandfathered into a relationship and we were with one of my big banking clients on the strength of 14 year track record grandfathered into an arrangement and you have to go through the hoops and we took six months to get a master agreement with that bank at the very beginning then you're still a micro firm without three years of trading history, without your own long list of projects and your own scale and um, and heritage to point to. So, and we had a situation where we where we had a master contract, and then we had a set of individuals, a, a, a client who who's and individual and and policy as was, although we're never quite sure whether this was um, really policy or whether it was preference, but. For whatever reason, we weren't allowed to expand. We weren't allowed to use our master contracts and expand the way that we'd been led to believe that we could at the beginning. So <laughs> it could be client concentration, right? We were quite polarized around that big anchor client. This was where we were going to get the first projects and then the rest of the business plan would layer on top. And then we find ourselves not able to talk to a client because of the pandemic and, uh, and not able to grow at the anchor client because um, despite holding paper, we were, it, it wasn't admissible. On which, on which you know our sponsors in the business didn't understand it either but but there we were so <laughs> we had to work really hard to go rest of market and, um, and get other clients we've now got 23 across the sector and the banks in seven of the world's largest banks um five insurance companies p-backed wealth asset management clients fintech clients and a few in between so it's a really healthy client spread some folks say to me oh isn't that better in the long run and I somehow say i I don't know, actually. The, the the first 18 months or so cost us a lot in terms of the business plan and actually financially as well. And we would be a lot bigger and then we would have created the investment opportunity around other facets of the business earlier, despite the, um, you know, the, the 180 you've, you've done all right uh, regardless of that, Tony. Does that okay? But uh, you always think you can go a bit faster. But uh, so trying to avoid that client concentration and, and going whole of market, super important. And we've had a... Um, a current 
instance where, and I get think that this is fairly common across the sector. And in fact, we were we weren't even, didn't even feel this till after Easter, but there are some headwinds at the moment in the banking, tech valuations, interest rates, um, and just frankly uncertainty in the sector, which is delaying some investment decisions. And we've had some delayed decisions on projects as a result. And it's been harder. It's been a bit harder. And um, we were, um, and we part of that was a reorg at a major client, which you couldn't really have. Um, foreseen but nonetheless we found ourselves looking at each other you know sort of a couple of months back going oh we didn't see this coming you know it's all got a bit harder and the takeaway was oh you know we, not that we ever took our foot off the gas but we ran into easter we were fully deployed and then we came out after easter and we realized that we weren't going to be fully deployed and i think you just want need to be oversubscribed and uh you know the fat end of the funnel needs to be very full and you need to be meeting clients all the time this is actually the biggest criticism of not working on bit self-billable work as a founder is actually that you don't have enough client time because you're necessarily not delivering a project so so you can sort of hide in hq and do admin which i don't buy into purely because i do the client side meetings with my chief growth officer about five or six times a week and we're meeting new clients all the time so uh, in, in my case it's a little bit different because i I do have lots of scheduled diary time with new prospects, but um, we've realized, I think we knew this, but we've realized um, sort of twice over that you just need to be having lots and lots of, uh, of, of new opportunity discussions and new introduction discussions. And the light bulb moment that came along with that mid last year was that when you get to sort of six, seven million type 50 people or so, you can only go so far on strength of relationship. And we've, we are building enduring relationships with clients. So there's follow-on projects and uh, there's, you know, that sort of expansion opportunity. But you also need to get the brand out there. You need to be uh, talking and educating the sector in relevant stuff and become the go-to for particular topics that are in our wheelhouse and, and be known for, for, for walking the talk and, 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 and have everyone know who Next Wave is. And I don't think consulting companies, ones I've been in anyway, have necessarily done proactive marketing as well as um, is possible with current technologies and marketing tech and um, social media and all of those things. So we we invested in and we hired someone on and we started working on digital marketing and uh, and we've got a long way to go. We're just getting started, but um, I can I can really I'm a big convert to that. I think I told you when we were talking earlier that oh my god um, I sort of probably should have been doing that from day one actually the brand building and the social and the digital marketing, but we're we're sort of up and running on that now. Well, and uh, obviously, as someone who runs a marketing agency for consulting firms, I will happily talk about <laughs> that. To and, you know, for the for the next hour and a half, we are just going to talk about that. But I, I am going to ask a little bit about it. But I want to start because you mentioned on your journey, you know, that does sound like you had a, quite a challenging start with, you know, that you got the MSA, but then you couldn't use it. You had to go out to market. And rather than ask how you did that, because you kind of touched on some of those key points. I'm interested in the decisions you mentioned on that journey. So things that stand out, and again, you can share with me, your chief growth officer, I mean, for it kind of is a, you know, it's just more so people understand the terminology. That's a kind of sales lead, sales director, he's out meeting clients. That is quite an unusual role in our industry, I would say, particularly where there is that sort of expert, that partner model, you know, most boutiques back to kind of, the, it's a bit of a cliche, but someone who's a partner in a bigger firm will start a smaller firm, they will do the sales, they will do the delivery. You obviously, you personally carved yourself out of delivery, you hired someone to do sales, and obviously we'll come on to marketing as you've touched on. But I'm interested around the decision points there. Because again, that 
model is quite different in our industry. I personally, I typically don't see salespeople work because they aren't experts. Clients want experts. In your case, it's clearly worked. So what have you done differently to most when they're looking at that approach? Well, we are, again, we're doing both. So our practice heads are commercially expanding their practice teams and selling as well as um, obviously delivering great projects. We do have um, the growth officer role, which I think it is unusual, um, Mm -hmm. but it works. Um, It helps that um, that individual is sort of 20 years in the sector, ran a successful boutique for years, um, has a senior Rolodex, so longer than my arm, and is very uh, sensible and uh, somewhat charming and very persistent in following up and uh, so easy to talk to. And uh, he says to me, I, says, I just like talking to people, but but it's always um, in context and it's politely persistent and, uh, and he's very good at it, right? Um, but he also knows when to ask for an expert to come with him, which is usually quite early in the dialogue. So that di- we found that dynamic is almost... It, it's an accelerator to the traditional partner-led model because if you uh, if you just have partner practice head partner model, then of course everyone's uh, folks have only got so many cycles and they'll be de- partly delivering, partly self-utilized, partly running a team, and partly doing some sales. But if you augment that with someone whose entire sort of uh, focus is getting the next senior meetings, um, then you get a multiplier effect and. Uh, and as I said, oftentimes it's two of us or three of us will go to go to early meetings and to ensure that there is enough solutioning and content in those discussions that they're not just uh, range-finding, prospecting conversations. I love that multiplier point because, again, like you say, it's it's not an either or, it's an and. And I, it's just a model I don't think I have seen anywhere else. I've seen either or, you know, we have a sales team and then the delivery people do it or the, you know, the partner-led. But to your point, that multiplier effect of having someone who can get the foot in the door, so to speak, and then actually bring that team along. Was that a deliberate hire or was it a, because you mentioned the individual's been in the industry 20 years, was it opportunistic? It was pretty opportunistic. When I was coming out of Cynocron, I had a uh, series of conversations with, with this chap um, who at the time was trying to entice me to come and um, potentially run the, um, the uh new merged venture that he was part of. But I think very early on, he, he, he saw, um, you know, next wave's a really strong proposition. It was only, it was like 18 months later when he uh, when he actually freed up from uh, the prior role. But I think quite early on, so, saw that um, there was there was a lot of potential with the next wave proposition. So we didn't get him on board until about 18 months later. But uh, it was, yeah, if we'd not had that discussion around next wave's business plan early on, I'd, I'd would I have gone out to try and seek such a person early on? Probably not. We had sales teams in earlier consulting companies that I was part of. But again, they were sort of generally less senior people and they would they would buy a lot of coffees and a lot of lunches. Um, but in the same way, actually, or very much have to bring an expert quite early in the dialogue. But it didn't it didn't generally didn't work very well. So I don't think I would have naturally decided to do that. I'd have probably have said, let's stick with the partner model. Yeah, no, as I say, I was, I was just curious on that. And I, I think you've explained how it works and, and why. And it does sound very much like the individual, it's the right role for the right individual. And to your point, that's what makes it work. But I really do like that kind of multiplier piece. And as I said, we're not going to spend an hour and a half on it, but I do want to touch on the marketing piece. Because again, I think in terms of boutiques, I think the world is changing, you know, and it's how we're able to exist as a business. A lot of consultancies are seeing the power of, like you said, digital, social, et cetera. But I know when we spoke ahead of this, you, you kind of mentioned you were converted to it. I just love to know what was that kind of moment? You know, was it 
LinkedIn lightning bolt from the sky? What was kind of that epiphany? And if it wasn't as dramatic as that, you tell me the story how it was. Yeah, it wasn't that dramatic. Um, I was looking at the value multipliers for growth consultancies and there's a couple of frameworks that I've used in the past where we've sold consultancies to provide that valuation. When you look around the sort of 360 degrees of the value in a, in a firm, there's things like quality of management types of clients and your IP and a number of products and services, etc. And there's a very defined dimension of valuation frameworks is um, sales and marketing processes and uh, strength of pipeline, etc. And I was always able to score, and we self-scored um, Next Wave quite early on against some of the frameworks I've used in the past, and you'd score quite highly on having blue-chip clients and um, an experienced team. I was like, oh, I don't really, what is this marketing dimension? You know, because they're not really doing much of it. We're just talking to clients and our network and the business is growing. And But so there was a bit of that. I'm part of some mentor groups and uh, and I started talking to the marketing experts in those groups and I, was, I started sort of almost opened, opened the lid of the box and I was like, crikey, now people are talking about marketing automation and campaigns and uh, and content marketing and inbound marketing. And so I started, I was, I better start researching this. So I started reading some books and um, so I wrote, I wrote something called They Ask, You Answer by Marcus Sheridan. There's a book called Story Brand by Donald Miller, and I started reading um, Daniel Priestley's books um, on, on. I was going on, to ask when you mentioned uh, oversubscribed a moment ago. There's, yeah, yeah. Well, that's obviously one of Daniel's. Um, and there's, and once you start to dig into it, this was a whole new world. And then, and then I thought, well, crikey, I mean, I've had marketing departments in firms that I've been part of before, but they've always been a bit of a reactive, publish a white paper or, or maybe make a LinkedIn post that's um, a bit sort of be careful because we've announced a few awards, but, you know, pat yourself on the back LinkedIn post. Whereas actually, I, I realized that actually if you're becoming a trusted voice at the sector and you can start to educate people and share your case studies and some of your delivery frameworks and things like that, that that's much more attractive and useful for clients. And it's um it's about being in the client's shoes and, and how do you um, help them on their journey to succeed and the whole different way of looking at everything and all the tools that go with it. So I started researching it. I started reading it. And I, I sort of, I don't know where my, you know, zero moment of truth was where I just realized that, okay, I'm going to have to do something here. But we decided to replatform the the website onto a much more dynamic CMS and link that to marketing automation. So we were, you know, for those who know the platforms, we went went full HubSpot and uh, we learned a lot. We're not, we're not done with that either because we're still sort of learning how to leverage the platform properly, but it's working for us so far. And then we've started building content assets and looking at what different publication and uh, campaign structures we can use and, uh, and getting much more conscious around posting on social media and uh, and all of those moving parts and you know, recording podcasts is, is part of it i guess well uh, me and my listeners benefit from your foray into marketing tony so thank you and and now i, I mean it, it makes a lot of sense and, and what i really like in what you've described there because it, it's true uh, is i think that actually marketing i mean obviously it helps you grow your business but has a really tangible element to valuation as well for people who are yeah, not everyone is, but for people who are looking to build to some sort of exit, actually the business has to exist beyond you because the whole idea is, you know, when a founder leaves, there has to be a business for whoever's bought it to continue. And so that marketing, that brand's really important. And, and like you say, the thing that I, and I say this to our clients, so the, the thing that's really changed in the game is the fact that firms of your size can compete with the likes of an Accenture, the likes of a PwC through marketing because the cost to play has dropped dramatically. You know, 20 years ago, 
it was you or them who had Heathrow and they've got more money than you do. You know, you walk in and there's Accenture and uh, I don't know if it's still Tiger Woods or whoever it was. Whereas now, as you said, like, we're recording this podcast, like the kit in front of us is high quality, but it's nowhere near as expensive as a Heathrow ad. You can stick it in the back of a, you know, my rucksack or my uh, slightly larger suitcase. I shouldn't lie. It's a, it's my larger suitcase, but actually these things are really powerful. And to your point, really help you stand out. So no, and thank you for the book recommendations. I'll make a note as well to send you, this is marketing, which is the one we give everyone, all of our clients by Seth Godin. But yes, I've also read some of Daniel Priestley stuff. He's very good. I've never seen him speak. I've always wanted to. I don't know if you have at all. Yeah, I have. Um, so I'm a big bar of that. They, they, they run and then run an accelerator for sort of generally sub 50 headcount firms. So we're sort of a bit off the t- top end of that, but actually it's all relevant. And, uh, and I think he's written four books and the, and the latter one, 24 assets is about the assets that you yeah. develop in the business. And I had a lot of, um, highlighter moments and white and light bulb moments reading that book. And, uh, and I was sort of leaning into that, uh, that approach very much. It's about, um, creating tangibles and, and product and, uh, and, and a whole framework for, for the, for the value in the, in the business and obviously reaching your, potential audience through digital means with great content. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting to your point around really like the, the value from that and links back to your, your chief growth officer conversation. One of our clients in his business, the business case for marketing was always, it's got to be a partner. You know, it's got to, in effect, just like you said, partners have to be a net contributor. Marketing has to be a net contributor. And I, I mean, I personally think that should be how it is across all firms, but too often it is it's awards, it's the odd breakfast, but actually tying it back to, okay, how does that lead to meetings? And like you you said with the tech investment, actually, it can be a real multiplier when done properly because people know you, you're reaching new people, you're getting new badges, like that's the real power of it. And you've answered the why. It sounds like it's early days, albeit you're already doing quite a lot. And I did have a play on the website ahead of today. So it is anyone who wants to see how it's done, go and jump on Tony's website. I love the different tools, the different digital accelerator frameworks and things as well. But I, I mean, I guess the you've answered it, but you probably have this in some of your groups. Is there any, have you ever had people go, well, Tony, why bother? Like you're, you know, you're growing 188%. Even if you did want to you know, at some point have an exit, your valuation is going to be pretty good. Are there any other reasons you've sort of given to people or have you ever had that challenge leveled at you? I'm just really intrigued from the, the groups uh, wh- you're in. Why bother in the marketing investment? Yeah. Yeah, I think you can, you can top out on relationship-led sales. And even if you're not topping out on it, you're leaving a massive opportunity on the table if you're not um, building the brand and reaching that. You know, content is on 24 hours a day. It's always available. It's digitally scalable. You can reach anyone and everyone. So if you can package your know-how and your approaches into digital content that you can then position in that way, then it's working for the business the whole time, whether, you know, uh, wherever you are and whatever you're doing. So maybe we could achieve, you know, X growth rate without, but I think do we do it right. We're going to get two or three X on that through, uh, through building the brand and making sure people are aware. I mean, there's, again, digging into the thesis on all of this, the buying decision, I understand it, uh, folks, prospects, this, this was a Google study, wasn't it? Seven, four, eleven, I think, they need to spend seven hours with you in four different places, you know, online or physical, and 11 different touch points to become comfortable with a brand and to, uh, to know you to the point where they'll make a buying decision. And a lot of how you achieve that is, is through the marketing exercise. When we go and see a prospect and we give a work, and we have a workshop discussion about the future of finance powered by low-code automation, which we do, 
those are great meetings, but they're one to one and they take an hour and a half of the head of practice and three weeks to schedule the session. And then it's what did you think about it afterwards? And they're, they're singular high value opportunities. If we can package that sort of thing and reach a, uh, reach a webinar, reach a digital marketplace, then we've just got this massive multiplier on the potential, uh, that we can create in the market. So no, I, I, completely, that. I completely agree, Tony. I am. I know that Ben and the CMAP guys regularly post clips of you talking. I feel we might now have a clip of you talking as well. <laughs> okay. no, no longer do I have to tell people why they should do marketing. So we've talked a lot, Tony, about the successes. And obviously, NextWare has been a phenomenal growth story, phenomenal journey for yourself. I really want to touch on something that you kind of mentioned in the intro, or sorry, the prep for this conversation, because I'm sort of letting people behind the curtain. I'll always speak to my guests ahead of these. We'll have a chat, interesting topics. And something you mentioned that I, I kind of made a note on, because some might think it runs counter to everything else is imposter syndrome. You know, you're obviously doing really well as a leader. You, you're building a great team, building a great firm. And you highlighted that this is, has been a challenge for you is something you've had to deal with. So I'd love to almost just open that up and yeah, tell me your experience with imposter syndrome and how you've overcome it. This hasn't been front and center, center but uh, from time to time, and I think we're all a composite of the experiences that we have in our uh, personal and professional journey. And uh, certainly true for me, because I've worked for every sort of size and shape of consulting firm along the way. And uh, when you are founder owner of your own thing, and clearly you are leading from the front, that's they say if you're the highest up, you can see the furthest. That's true. I'm setting strategy and uh, and uh, sort of doing partnership deals and, and and setting direction from the top. It also can be somewhat lonely at the top because uh, the buck stops and the decisions stop and, uh, and the really hard stuff. I mean, I'm very lucky that I've got a great sort of senior team who I bounce ideas off, and we've got a very open open culture. So. Uh, there's a sort of physical or virtual whiteboard for for most obstacles, but fundamentally, buck stops with me. And I am conscious, I'm increasingly conscious that we're building a growth enterprise, and there's you know 50 plus employees in the UK business whose livelihoods and their families and everything hanging off the back of what we're creating. And uh, it's not it's not all plain sailing. So we have uh, great months and great weeks, and then we have time setbacks. And we have, you know, I was talking about the master contracts with big clients and things, and then you, and it's sometimes um, we have to dig a bit deep. And so I have um on that journey from time to time so i don't know you know if you really got what it takes here because anyone listening to this about sort of should i launch my own consultancy it's not just a uh you know it's a marathon not a sprint and uh and it's not all plain sailing despite the fact that we use a picture of a yacht on a lot of our marketing materials on the website <laughs> someone said to me is that your yacht i said no not yet but if you look really closely there's nobody at the helm <laughs> <laughs> which is true actually. so i think it's uh, something to do with automation and autopilot but anyway i transgress but uh imposter syndrome that sort of feeling that perhaps um you're not really cut out for it but in my career you know, accenture were famous for um hiring junior people giving them a bit of training and then putting them in to run a team in some big blue chip firm and it happened to me i mean i was you know told to lead a team at barclays i think i've been inside um Accenture for less than a year and I had a team of four people and I was supposed to be delivering a very significant part of a project and I, I didn't really feel like I was uh, ready for it and that has happened to me at certain points in my in my career 
and this, I'll, I'll borrow um, a label from someone else. I'm mean, one of the folks that I follow from time to time, Stephen Bartlett, who I think is um, really very interesting and quite inspirational. He talks about this a bit, and he said that it's not imposter syndrome. Just think of them as growth moments. <laughs> they're, they're moments when <laughs> when there's a little life lessons or a career lesson there, and you realise something that you can then take forward with you. And uh, and so I've had a few occasions in my career where I've realised that. Uh, you can step into role and you can own it and you can lead. And we were doing a project for a Swiss bank many years ago when I was still at Accenture. And uh, again, super junior team, but dealing with a super seasoned team of um, senior IT professionals out of the IT department in the US, in New York, one of whom was a uh, sort of New Jersey Italian um, senior technology manager. And I was, you know, who was 20 years older than me, and I was sort of wavering in this sort of senior consultant role about what we were trying to do with his department. And he took me aside. He goes, I can't even do the do the accent, but it was just like, Tony, own it. And you know, you need to play the role. And uh, <laughs> and I was like, whoa. And I, I kept that one. Um, and, the uh, accent was brilliant, by the way. I yeah, cannot fault thank that. You, thank you. All of mine come out as sort of a Welsh Indian type amalgam. So that was that was fantastic. And I had another one. And um, I'm probably not listening, but uh, there was a, a CIO at a major bank, and this was much more recent. It, was, it wasn't nothing to do with NextWave, but prior firm. And we were just embarking on doing major technology projects for that firm. And it was the first big offshore delivery project off scale, you know, 30 or 40 people. And we just signed um, uh, master terms, and we were doing it. And, and this is a bit of a stretch because we, we'd, um, through the acquisition of the prior boutique, we'd, I had personally introduced New Parent Co and said, trust me, we can do great work uh, onshore and offshore. And we'd been granted our first project and it came with the blessing of the CIO. And it didn't even turn up for the kickoff discussion. <laughs> he sent um, second in command, who was carrying a yellow post-it note, and he handed it to me. He goes, "This is from the boss." And it just said, "Don't f it up." <laughs> <laughs> that's a serious power play. That, yeah. That's the sort of thing you get in Hollywood films. Yeah, um, and uh, look, you could take that two ways. But I mean, I took that as a as a positive um, positive nudge. It, it sort of said um, that you're in the chair. And I've had lots of sort of, sort of smaller smaller learnings along the way. When you start to build a scale team and you're running town halls or you get flown out to uh, another region to go and present to a global team, um, that sort of um, stage fright thing, you know, I often used to get that. I sort of don't get it anymore because you just have to, you learn to A, B yourself and C. And secondly, having such a sort of varied patchwork of career experiences and solved solutions. Ultimately, there's always a solution for everything. You, I sometimes just think, I'm going to work this, I'm just going to work this through and uh, I'll sleep on it and then tomorrow I'll think of it some more and we'll find a solution and we invariably do. So I, so I, I try not to sweat small stuff anymore and uh, if you're in the role, play the role. So um, with Next Wave, it's sort of been easy. It's a composite of all those experiences and uh, so I've put myself out as majority owner and founder. I am the leader. I will say things about where I think we're going to be in three years or five years and set direction. And I'll also tell the team, if it doesn't work, that's on me. And, and, and I'm very comfortable with that, actually, because that just has to be that way, right? I'm, I'm trying to much more look forward rather than looking over the, looking over the shoulder in the rear view mirror the whole time. If that makes oh, any I, sense, I, I, I love the growth opportunity or growth moment. I also, and this this may not be funny to anyone else, but that it's my show. Is I, I love that I've heard of bag carriers, but not post-it carriers before. <laughs> yes. So that's uh, <laughs> there you go. Um, so that's a new one. But I, I do like that. And to your point, Tony, that that composite. And that, this is probably an impossible question to answer, but it's a, it's the obvious one to ask. Is you know, is it that that enabled you to do next wave? Almost, you know, the 
could you have done this 10 years ago? Could you have done this 20 years ago? You know, you mentioned fintech. It's very sexy to start a business at 21 or drop out of college. And, you know, I think there is a success bias there. You know, we all think of Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, one of those big unicorn founders, but they are so few and far between. And actually, I'm interested in your take, you know, could this have been as successful if you did it 10 years ago without those growth opportunities? For me, I don't think so. And it's not just those sort of light bulb moments where I've been, you know, jabbed in the ribs by a client or, or it's actually the combination of business consulting and lots of different clients and technology and then a proper stint overseeing digital deliveries and seeing the world of fintech and regtech evolve and then it's all coming together and at scaling consulting companies at the same time. So I've really got at least a bit of a mental map of um, of what we need to be doing. And I don't think I had that earlier in career. So for me, I think um, I might have thought I was, I was already, but I, I'm sure I would have, uh, I've missed a large piece of it. Whereas at the moment, I don't think there's a large section of the map missing. I think I'm open to new ideas and I'm not always the first to innovate. And, uh, and I still are very active in mentoring communities because I'm always trying to sponge up um, ideas from people who are smarter than I am. But uh, I just don't think I had quite enough of the foundation blocks earlier. Yeah, no, and I, I really like that because, again, I think entrepreneurship is now cool, which has a better side, but also a worse side of it is not for everyone, nor is it for everyone at a certain time. And I think to your point that I love that map analogy of now you've got all of those pieces, you know, the clear success the next wave is having shows what happens when you have that map. Whereas... If you did that another time, you didn't have that map. Actually, maybe some of those things that were little bumps in the road would have been big bumps. And yeah, I love the sort of that growth moment piece. I, I guess just for anyone else listening, are there any kind of things you hark back to the you know the old advice for overcoming that imposter syndrome or overcoming those growth moments? Is it just that reframe? You know, it's a lesson, it's a life, it's an improvement, or has there been anything else that's really helped you? One of those light bulb moments. Yeah, I think I think reflecting on how you've succeeded and solved things and much harder things in the past always helps. One of the things I did when I turned 40 was, I don't know, I, partly because a friend asked me to join him, was I took my free fall parachute license. So I, I learned how to jump out of airplanes. And uh, it scared the, yeah, it scared the hell out of me. And uh, so I did eight jumps and uh, got my ticket. And then uh, and I thought, well, you know, I've ticked that particular bucket list box. So I'm, so, um, I'm done there. But um, I'm for, you know, from time to time since, if I'm doing something, you know, a big presentation or uh, public speaking or something, that's one of those moments when I think back and I go, I did that. So, <laughs> so yeah, this, is, this is nothing compared to, you know, leaping out at 15,000 feet. So um, if you've got something to frame against or you can think back to some, you know that you've, yeah, it felt scary last time you presented to a few hundred people in the quarterly town hall, but it was fine then uh, that helps. And the other thing, and I think the military say this, so prior preparation prevents piss poor performance, I think was the uh, the phrase that um, someone told me very many years ago. If you do the prep, so you've done the research, if, particularly if you're presenting or public speaking or you know, you've anything that you need to deliver, you really do the homework, then you, you'll always be fine. In fact, you run out of time because you've got so much you want to talk about because it's all so front of mind. Yeah. Um, and it, or whereas the, if you don't do that, preparation then you'll find yourself scratching around and, and, and struggling to make the point and uh and uh that can that can be awful so i try and uh, try to squeeze in enough research and then um run through whatever i'm going to say on any, any sort of key public speaking piece um you know two or three times. i was trying to make myself read my notes an extra time so that and and then 
away you go. After the thir- first thirty seconds, it's uh, it's fine. Yeah, and and it's still not as scary as jumping out of a plane, which I, no, exactly. I've never done because I equally have a fear. I've I've not conquered, nor has anyone asked me to conquer, so I haven't gone out of my way too. But no, I, I I love that, and yeah, the military piece. I I listened to a podcast, and I can't remember who it is, but there's a I think it's U.S. military was talk about two is one and one is none, which is same preparation. You know, the if you have two as something and one fails, you've still got one. If one fails and it fails, you've got none, you know, and it's why you're looking at quite a lot of podcast kits in front of you. We've already swapped, swapped a cable in, <laughs> I saw earlier on. <laughs> exactly, two is one, one is none. I think, Tony, I'm conscious of time. I know you, you, know, you were kind enough to come out for lunch with me before, so I've taken a lot of your day today, and thank you for it, because it's been great, and it's been really nice to hear the journey, learn the story, sort of behind what I saw online. And the last piece for today, and these are questions that I ask all of my guests. Some of this might be a recap because we've covered a lot of ground. Some of this might be new pieces. But these are always the questions I ask everyone. So I love similarities. I love differences in them. The first one, and we talked a little about books in marketing. So those might be the recommendations. But I'm interested in the book or books that you have given to people who have had the biggest impact on you. And and why is that? Yeah, well, I've read quite a bit over the years, but uh, they they are... marketing and sales most recently that you know in the context of this discussion had the most impact so i would say adam pink to sell is human i don't know if you read adam pink but uh, that's really just um, about framing and storytelling in everything that we do and that sales isn't a thing a salesy thing it's actually we're always influencing and positioning and it's very very helpful for people especially people who don't think they're salespeople, because we're all we all actually influence everyone we know and that we interact with all the time so that's adam pink i mean i have given that i gave that one away to people in previous firms and i think i probably gave people a copy um in next wave in year one as well and then more recently i do i do really like what daniel priestley writes i mean i think there's um anyone in the entrepreneurship space or business growth space it should spark all sorts of light bulbs so um and he's written i think four books but um, if it, it you know i'm talking about enterprise and corporate and where the space we're at so 24 assets i think is the uh the, the one that he points towards performance businesses so that's a bit more a combination of um of some of the earlier books with for smaller firms so uh, well, it's so, nicely so 24 assets is is nicely laid out for consultants as well because like you say there are 24 of them there's a chapter on each you can read about them i do and this is probably a conversation for a, another day but i i first was introduced through key person of influence which i think a bit to your point of digital part of it's the firm part of it's the you know 24 assets overlaps this but how you as a consultant how your brand what that looks like in the industry as well there's a whole conversation there as well so no he's, a, he's definitely a, an author worth worth reading brilliant and then the very last question and again we've we've covered a lot of ground so this may be a recap or maybe new things but you've got three people in front of you now, you mentioned you started accenture which makes my trp easy you've got one who's that analyst just starting out one who's call it manager level and one who's that associate partner director they're they're thinking of starting their own firm or they're thinking of joining the partnership what one piece of advice would you give to each okay um, i think i've got sort of one piece of advice in three parts that's so fine the folks starting out i'd say get some tangible skills to so get certified in, in something um, sometimes people start with counseling skills but you know our, our juniors always they start on low code or analytics and they get a certificate and they've got got hard skills that they can then leverage ever after find a mentor so the right firm to learn from or the right individual with a firm the, the number one reason for joining next wave and every time i interview someone they always say learning i just want learning experience um so find the right people 
or person to learn from. And um, and the last part of that is, 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 is own the outcome. So be a complete finisher. So that point I was making earlier in the conversation about um, owning the outcome. And the worst thing you can do for your employer is be a person who creates work for everyone else because you only half finish things or um, you don't know the right times to uh, to ask questions versus getting on with it. So I think that's been my start. Brilliant, I love it. Uh, tip. Three is better than one, to your point of two plus two is better than four. Yeah, there you go. I'm over-delivering right there. Um, Consulting 101 for you, Tony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a bit will be in the post, yeah. Uh, so mid-level, develop your network. So the folks you meet in those consulting projects and in those firms sort of mid-career are going to be in your market probably forever. And I keep tripping over people. In fact, uh, with my... CGO, we laugh sometimes that his Rolodex overlaps with mine, and my memory is is, is working on a, uh, a FIFO basis where first in, first out, and some of my early memories I think are now being squeezed out by later learnings. And and we've turned up to see people in the long prospect list two or three times, and where I've not clocked the name, and I've said, "Oh, yeah, I'll come for this one." And we walk in, they go, how are you doing? <laughs> like, Crikey, oh, get each other. <laughs> so um, it comes around in the network. And if and uh, so develop that network and always be straight and play fair with people because you will come into uh, come up against them. There's a lovely story actually on that, touching on the imposter point from earlier, where there's someone that I was with at Accenture 20 years ago who was uh, parallel pathing with me, who I thought was um, a lot stronger and, uh, and then ultimately owned one of the client relationships uh, where I was, I found it a bit harder and I finished that project earlier than she did. And we had a gap of about 20 years and we reconnected last year. And I said, you know, oh, you know, I'm like, brilliant to see you but you know i never thought i was that good in there and, and she turned around no you were great everyone thought you were great and i was like wow and it was like that was that i've been carrying that for 20 years um wow. so it was and another example of the network just come full circle because uh we'd ended up um you know, at different angles but talking to the same client so i think that's a big thing if you're mid-career and the other thing alongside that is start to develop that commercial acumen because if you can go up the um up the curve in consulting it's ultimate commercial business. You have to be generating um, generating fees and projects. And uh, there are roles in scale firms, certainly of sort of distinguished engineer and subject expert. So perhaps that's not universally true. But if you certainly if you want to be a partner in a consulting firm, that's got a, uh, a very significant um, commercial piece to it. What's the third part there? Uh, One approaching partner. I'd say uh, it's an extrapolation of what I just said. Map and deepen your relationships. So if you're actually approaching partner or if you were to step out of a firm and interview to be a partner at another firm, straight up it's going to be, well, who do you know? Where have you worked? What have you sold? And what's your projection for how much of the business you can bring? I mean, that's pretty fundamental. So if you've got, say, just a great um, delivery record, but you've just can't uh, can't map the uh, relationships and the potential client value from your network, then uh, you're going to really struggle in a partner role. I think. Yeah, and I, I think it comes back to you know, your point earlier and that fundamental for next wave of make a positive net contribution. Yeah. You know, if you can't do that from a revenue perspective, it, it probably isn't going to be the right role for you. No, Tony. I think that is a great place. Now, as you say, it's massive over delivery on the advice, and thank you. I always love that piece and some great points in there. That is us for today. So thank you. The only thing, and it's not so much a question, but more if anyone wants to find out about yourself, find out about Next Wave, where would you point them to? Where can they find you? nxwave.com. And there's a picture of me on the uh, on the About page, and uh, which actually has a very small LinkedIn 
link from the web. So that'd be the first place to go. Um, or, or just straight up on LinkedIn, obviously, I've got a profile there. Fantastic. Well, I'll put along with the book recommendations, put links to the website and your profile in the show notes so people can go and find them if you're listening and want to find more out about Next Wave or Tony, go and look there. And all that's left to say, Tony, is thank you very much and all the best for the rest of your week. Thanks, Nick. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's Nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.